My guest today is Adam Thirlwell, whose latest novel, The Future Future, is one of the most engaging, provocative and entertaining books since, well, since the last Adam Thirlwell novel. Set ostensibly in revolutionary France, it follows Céline from young womanhood as she navigates a shifting landscape, which is being transformed as much by new media, new ways of doing business and the discovery of new territories as by the various political insurrections. The Future Future is a novel about how women survive in a world wrought by male violence, about language, how it shapes us and how we're shaped by it, about friendship, about power, and perhaps unsurprisingly, given the title, about time. Sheila Hetty called The Future Future radically beautiful, while Salman Rushdie described it as a dazzling performance, unlike anything else you'll read this or any other year. And I'm delighted to say that Adam Thurwell joins me to discuss it today. Adam, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Um, so I suppose the sort of the easy way to at least begin describing this book is as a historical novel. Um, but I think readers will very quickly get the sense that it's quite unlike any other or most other historical novels um, in the language that it uses, in the concerns it seems to have. And I think also in the way that, in a sense, it doesn't pretend to assume all of the terminology, all of the conventions and all of the sort of the, the encased knowledge of the particular time it's um, it's writing about. Would you be able to begin just by sort of reflecting a little bit on how you came to this approach to write about this particular epoch? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, the, the novel begins in about, I guess the rough 1770s in mm -hmm. Paris. Um, and it began because I became very interested in a, in a genuine historical episode which was that before the French Revolution there were a group of pretty much hack writers who were living in London in exile so these were Parisian writers living in London and who were writing what were called pamphlets but they were pretty hefty pamphlets mm -hmm. sometimes uh, that were in their eyes radical satirical uh, pamphlets against the Ancien Regime uh, but which pretty much are just pornography uh -huh. and they were written about um, Marie Antoinette kind of most famously but also a whole group of women um, around Marie Antoinette um, and in the aristocracy more generally uh, and the reason I became very interested in it was because I then discovered that Beaumarchais actually before he had become famous for being the writer of The Marriage of Figaro and Barbara mm -hmm. as a sort of failed 40-year-old writer but who he was sent by the French government to try and essentially buy off these writers. So he mm -hmm. was sent over the channel uh, with a lot of money. And then one of the things that I liked very much about this story is that Beaumarchais, as a pure hustler, then invented his own sort of side hustle. So he would write back to the French government. He would make friends with the pornographers and then say um, to the French government, I've discovered that there's actually another pamphlet. If you send me kind of double the money, mm -hmm. I think I'd get it stopped. And in fact, it was a title that he'd invented with the um, writer. And so they split the money. So he was <laughs> both from the government for kind of um, in two different ways. Um, so there was this kind of, and it felt to me just like this, this universe I was discovering of just writing and very compromised morality. It was just something I was fascinated by. Mm -hmm. um, and then essentially decided that actually it'd be much more interesting though to flip it and to write about the experience of being one of the people, one of the women being mm -hmm. written about. Um, and it's true though that at that, that point, Obviously, I was therefore being plunged into the idea that I was going to write a historical novel. And I have mm -hmm. to say that I have many sort of worries about the historical novel in general as a genre that I think maybe particularly in British fiction, it can become 
quite a sort of well, quite a genre basically, like a, a genre with various expectations, um, both about who you write about and how you write about them. Um, so stylistically, obviously, one of the things that I think a lot of people really love about historical fiction is when it tries to sort of reproduce the language mm -hmm. or the kind of um, the ideas of the period. And certainly the kind of rule seems to be that you are not allowed any anachronism. <laughs> um, so the anachronism is nearly always what is uh, sort of picked out in yeah. the, I think of historical fiction. A rule you break on the first page, if I remember right. <laughs> yeah, so I decided that, um, well, it was partly because actually what was really more and more interesting to me was thinking well there is essentially a collapse of the thing that fascinates me here is how could you write essentially a contemporary novel that is about male violence about mm -hmm. the proliferation of media um about a universe where language has essentially taken over but with no real reference to truth or mm -hmm. you know veracity um so to essentially write a contemporary novel that happened to use as its setting uh, the 18th century um so Absolutely, I decided to signal, I, I suppose, immediately that this was going to be um, not your conventional historical novel um, and that it would actually delight, in a sense, in anachronism. Mm -hmm. um, so in the dialogue, the dialogue is pretty much like the dialogue I would have written for the same people if they were living now. Um, yeah. uh, which it occurs to me, I think, might be slightly influenced by, you know, I've always been very interested in translation. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the books that I've most loved is Robert Lowell's Imitations. And I've always, yeah. um, you know, I have some problems with that book, but one of the things that I've always loved is his introduction where he says, you know, I'm trying to write as if the writer were here and now, mm -hmm. you know, living in New York in the 1950s or whatever. Um, and I think something like that was kind of in my head as well, that I was just going to write as if these people were alive right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'd be saying. Um, so I guess, that's where it began but it also one of the things that is always fascinating i'm sure with doing this kind of book is that often some of the more um i'm sure some of the elements that seem the most made up and the most impossible are actually true you know so that there's a kind of um play that i quite enjoyed where realizing that there would be details that would seem utterly 21st century mm -hmm. i don't know a transgender diplomat or right. something like that which is actually entirely historically accurate um, yeah, yeah, that was the the, the Comte du Barry, was it? The, yeah, that was Comte Deon. Uh, Comte Deon. Okay, so, yeah. uh, where there were who lived again in, in exile in um in London, but where there were bets in newspapers with people not knowing, you know, saying, "Is this a man? Is this a woman?" Yeah, so yeah. Really fascinating character who seems entirely not fitting, as it were, in 18th century context. Um, in in that respect, like when you um, allow yourself, for example, the the anachronisms, does that increase or decrease your other obligations or any obligation you feel to sort of historical accuracy? Um, I think my, it's interesting because of course, one thing like in a sense, like one of the major plot moments obviously towards the end is a, is a huge uh, historical inaccuracy, a kind of counter, a counter historical moment. Um, so clearly there is a major inaccuracy, mm -hmm. you know, deliberately in the book, other than, sort of flagrant inaccuracies. I think the book is relatively uh, actually historically faithful. Mm -hmm. um, it's more, I think, I think you're right. It's something to do with the way I was trying to play with our expectations of the language almost. So mm -hmm. try and often one of the things that was interesting was trying to find neutral terms. I think I was also, as much as I was keen to sort of 
avoid pastiche 18th century language. I think I did want to slightly give a sort of almost timelessness to the story. Mm -hmm. So you weren't quite sure when it was set. So that any word that would instantly put you in one period, I tried to sort of massage. So for instance, obviously they're getting around in carriages as it were, or horses and carriages. Um, but I think I just used the general word vehicle uh -huh. <laughs> so that they're getting into vehicles. Um, and then one that I found particularly funny was when Beaumarchais, which is entirely true, was having huge problems getting the marriage of Figaro put on. Mm -hmm. And so I have him stuck in development, which is obviously right, a yeah. term, but is entirely, he was, a, that was, you know, that's basically what was happening. He was in exactly the same thing where, you know, different committees were holding the script up mm -hmm. when you know, we're having their notes were in exactly the same manner that now a Hollywood studio would be holding a script up. So there did become quite a fun game of how can I find the neutral term almost mm -hmm. that will be entirely 21st century, but um, still accurate to what is going on in the 18th. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And speaking about the, the, the epoch more generally, obviously it's, um, it's a revolutionary um, time. And I think the, I think it was the first of your books I read was Kapow, actually, after you did an event here at the bookstore, what, like 10, 12 years ago, something like that. Um, and of course, that is a book which deals a lot with the the Arab Spring. Um, and I, I was thinking of that particularly because there was one line which I've come back to several times in the in the last few years where one of the characters says, I don't really know if a revolution is a place to learn about ethics. Um, and that came to me quite a bit during during this book. But is that also something like are you do you consider yourself specifically interested in those kind of moments in history, whether it be relatively contemporary history like the Arab Spring or the French Revolution, where society seems to be sort of disintegrating and being remade? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure I am. Um, and I think I've been always interested in both. I guess I want to say utopians, like utopian mm -hmm. radical characters. And so people who are trying, even like in my first novel, which was essentially a kind of polyamorous kind of throuple, mm -hmm. um, how they were trying to negotiate living differently, um, but then still finding themselves horribly curtailed by old fashioned emotions, like kind of mm. jealousy or sort of, you know, something while trying to live more commonly, feeling that they're being mm -hmm. back into older practices. Um, and so, Absolutely. When I was writing Kapow, which was this crazy typographic kind of explosion that was about the Arab Spring and also about, I guess, there about watching the Arab Spring, about being an mm. outsider to it and what you feel when you're not involved. Um, so it's true that maybe going to the French Revolution, which is in some sense is the uh, Western Revolution. Right. Yeah. Um, may, you know, I, I definitely that was part of the project. Like I was excited by it, I think, when I realized that I could write about it which was something I think I've been thinking about all my writing life mm -hmm. um and I think because precisely it creates these these ethical problems and I think especially what's fascinating is in the figure of Celine who's the main character I think what I wanted to explore was exactly that kind of intersectional ambiguity so that on the one hand she is from the aristocracy in some mm -hmm. way or she's from the, the very rich kind of um echelon of society on the other hand as a woman she's therefore almost powerless mm -hmm. um, and then how she negotiates that kind of dance between power and non-power as she kind of keeps going as she lives through the revolution and beyond was exactly yeah something that I was really fascinated by to see the different compromises 
Um, and I suppose that's where the project started with even the writers, you know, I, I think ever since, you know, all, I guess it might be because I think some of the writers I was most marked by when I was growing up were the Central European novelists of the 20th mm -hmm. century and the way in which they either negotiated fascism, Nazism or communism, and the ways in which they were trying to work out how to kind of be a writer, but negotiate your relationship with power mm -hmm. is definitely something that I'm really fascinated by. So, mm -hmm. I, yeah, so I think revolution in all its different forms and whether a revolution can truly work and whether it can work for everyone and who still suffers in a revolution. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that I was really interested, I think, in this is the way the French revolutionaries were both deeply sexist so that they certainly had no intention of extending the franchise to women and also in many ways were pro-slavery you know that mm -hmm. there was, you know and actually and so that was another um aspect of the book that I think yeah I found very important was this way in which almost no one is a pure revolution you know they, they've right. got these blind spots so however radical they believe themselves to be um there are actually areas where they're actually deeply unradical yeah yeah um, and also there's that that interesting connection i think between writers and revolution and i guess in the same time revolutions in writing as well because so you have the again to talk about the arab spring i mean that was uh, one of the things that was cited about a, a lot of these uprisings was how Twitter and social media played a part in um, the the not just sort of the reporting of these, but the actual instigation and an organization of these insurrections. And we find almost a similar thing in in this in uh, the future future as well. And as much as like there are, you know, there's there seems to be a permeability between the writers and the revolutionaries and the writers and the politicians and also with the the production of these pamphlets that seems to it's they seem to be a, a sort of on the cusp of some sort of transformation in the way people consume uh writing and the way that writing can have an effect on people's lives yeah i think that's a huge topic i mean because i think i guess one thing that maybe has happened in the last decade is that at the moment of the arab spring it was possible to believe that social media were a force for good they were remember those days part of this democratic movement and i think now i'm sure one of the differences as it were between the way revolution might be treated or language in kapow or even in politics my first book and here is a much larger i don't know i don't know what the word would be like disappointment or mm. fear almost of an information age yeah. Um, and so there's almost something I think yeah more ironized I guess about mm -hmm. the, this interplay between power and language um, so it's true again in terms of historical accuracy it is true that some of these pamphleteers who were writing their deadbeat pornography mm -hmm. did become relatively successful politicians mm -hmm. um, you know and were in the revolutionary government um, and I think, though, that now this kind of interplay between being a journalist and being a politician seems to me to be one that certainly, if you look at the kind of current conservative government, is a purely evil one, as it were. <laughs> so, um, and I think the idea is that you are a columnist turned prime minister mm -hmm. um, or cabinet minister. Um, I think it's a because all that you're, if your training is to simply produce opinion with no obvious 
connection to the truth. Um, I think that's an incredibly obviously bad model for a politician. Mm. So I think it's the way in which there's a corruption of language almost that I think is now going on both in the world of social media and in journalism. Um, and the way though that those have been, you know, played out in current governments. I mean, not just in Britain, but you know, you can see it in say like Berlusconi's Italy, mm -hmm. you know, like that kind of mediification of government um, is something that's incredibly worrying. And so I guess it interested me to think actually maybe there is not something so you know maybe this transition of writer to politician mm -hmm. isn't as um exciting as it might have first seen you know i guess you know certainly when i was growing up the model of you see the perfect model of this is say someone like Václav havel or something right yeah, yeah yeah this noble writer who then becomes um the leader of a country through a revolution uh, but then even havel's trajectory is fascinating because by the end of his life he was certainly what i think would be quite easily described as a neocon and mm -hmm. so you know was no longer someone that I <laughs> would want to sort of identify with so I think the the thing though that fascinated me most was exactly like at what point does if you're someone who's just used to producing language mm -hmm. is that really a good model for then the production of power but and mm -hmm. at the same time how much power is partly a linguistic construct you know in producing a constitution or a draft, you know, bill of rights or whatever. These are works of literature as much as they're works of politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's there's definitely a sense of, um, for Celine, um, um, above all of the other characters, I think, of being kind of hemmed in by the um, the power of language um, and, and in different ways throughout the book. Why didn't Celine do more, she often thought, but it was a world like many worlds where your power seemed defined by your relations to other people. For a woman, this usually meant your husband, but Celine's husband was Sasha, a minor but murderous fascist, the personal secretary to the chief minister. She had married Sasha a year ago when she was 18 and he was 45, and before her wedding she had met him just once, accompanied by their parents and 15 lawyers. But still, after these early meetings, she believed that she loved him. His sense of humour in private was goofy. They both enjoyed playing drafts. But ever since the pamphlets began, their conversations had become more difficult. They argued more often, little dialogues about money and sex and time. The more the pamphlets increased, the more separately they lived. Sasha started sleeping at his office. He ordered in food and crates of wine while he had his meetings discussing the ongoing international wars. There was a rumour that he slept with anyone. In other words, her husband was in absence and her parents were elsewhere in the countryside. Her mother wrote her letters saying how quiet it was and how they were all thinking of her while they did their sewing and their reading. Her father's lectures at the university were being postponed for a semester. In her letters back to them, Celine left the pamphlets unmentioned. She couldn't see her parents as a little shelter, something to take with her in any weather. They were something she had left behind long ago. It was as if her loneliness were an object or as if she had turned into an object and this object was called loneliness. The only constant presence near her was Cato. Cato was chubby, morose and 15. He'd arrived in town a few months earlier with a diplomatic retinue from an Indian Republic and Celine had asked if he wanted to stay with her as a personal assistant. She'd somehow given him the name Cato and an extravagant salary. He had quickly developed his own way of speaking her language 
a kind of patois of his own that mixed high art with unusual mismatches of register. At night, Cato worked on his memoirs of the women he observed, notes which he safely left anywhere in the house because no one could read the script in which he wrote or understand the words themselves. And this was lucky because the illegible words were little insults, questions of relative attractiveness, revolutionary philosophy. Instead of a husband or family, Celine had her friends, Julia and Marta. They messaged each other every hour, small sentences and notes. It was a way of offering each other hope. The universe disintegrates into a cloud of heat. It falls inevitably into a vortex of entropy. But within this irreversible process, there may be areas of order, portions of existence that tend towards a form in which it might be possible to discern a design. And one of these was this story of Celine and her friends. Celine found Marta beside the ice cream bar. She showed her a glimpse of the latest pamphlet, which she then concealed very fast in a hidden pocket. Oh, yeah, said Marta. They went to hide behind an imported tropical plant for private conversation. Celine loved Marta because she was small and intense. Her fingernails were often black with mud and paint and other dirt. She had a filthy sense of humor. She had features that were elongated and outsized, but also magically alluring. And she smoked even more than Celine did. This new pamphlet, said Marta, described a list of pornographic affairs between Celine and various celebrity women, government ministers, and assorted minor characters. There was also a lot of politics, she continued, like bribery and extortion and a conspiracy against the government. And it ended with an agreement between Celine and several Jewish billionaires to negotiate with foreign powers and take control in America, which they then celebrated, added Marta, in a variety of truly barbaric sexual positions. Celine thought she might be sick, not so much at any single detail of this picture, but because there were so many more images of her in other people's minds than she could bear. Don't carry on, she said. I mean, that's kind of everything, said Marta. An empty moon was orbiting at a vast distance from their planet, the same way the conversations continued orbiting. I grew up among women, a man interrupted, speaking very close to Celine. His breath smelled sourly of chocolate. I am hyper alert to conversations between women, he added. But you've never heard that kind of conversation, she said, by definition. But I can try, he said. Everyone loved pleasure. And perhaps the gruesome man talking to her was sincerely attentive in his feelings towards women, but Celine doubted it. Increasingly, to Celine and her friends, pleasure seemed complicated. Celine escaped into a side room which had a few vases arranged on the floor for women to piss in. She began to piss too. It was a difficult operation and some splashed on the rim, staining the edge of her dress. Someone she loved once said to her, it looks like a party, it feels like a party, it smells like a party, but don't get it twisted. This isn't a party, this is power, baby. Celine started to cry, then stopped herself. Then she went back into the room. Um, you, you mentioned um, at the beginning that you, you know, the, the original sort of inspiration or the idea behind came from this, this group of writers. And then you thought it would be interesting to, to look at it from the perspective of one of these women who was being written about. Um, it struck me that it's quite uncommon um, I think maybe for kind of for good some good reasons and some bad to have uh, a man writing about the experience of male violence from the perspective of a uh, a female protagonist was that the sort of I guess the external politics of such a decision for a writer did that have any sort of impact in your on your on your decision so whether to sort of to whether you were a bit nervous about undertaking it or whether it felt like a, a challenge which you should you should take um, on yeah well I guess 
absolutely it was obviously a concern you know like kind mm. of it was something where I knew that I had to think very carefully about it and it's not you know obvious how you go about it apart from um what am I trying to say yeah it was an absolute worry and at the same time felt integral to the project mm -hmm. um, it felt that if I were only to as it were write from the perspective of the men that wasn't what interested me um and I guess there is a way in which partly it was I think it reminded me of a certain trauma almost of actually my own experience which is at the moment of becoming a writer you know I started very young mm -hmm. and I think that there was no doubt that the experience of on the one hand you've written a book and now suddenly a lot of people are writing about you or about mm -hmm. what you produce um was both very exciting but also I think deeply deeply traumatic partly exactly in that sense of you have no control you know mm -hmm. you can't, and it's not a conversation it's not something that you can right. enter and you, you will simply have to let people talk about you so I do think there was also something quite personal probably in the thought mm -hmm. of well actually this is something that I know has been in many ways was something that I had to really work on was how to cope with this experience of entering the public world um and sometimes entering the public world as it were against your will of not really right. thinking that you've chosen that so I think that that experience was something that I could use when trying to think about the sort of much more intense violence being directed verbally at someone like Celine um mm. but clearly yeah this question of representation was something that was deeply on my mind so I think one way I was trying to then think through it actually was within the writing of the book was to make the question of representation of who can speak for who mm -hmm. allowed to speak um like integral to the book so not just actually in how do you if you know how as a man do you represent a woman's experience um but also how do you represent a different ethnicity's experience right. um, how do you represent um, and, and I think partly because one thing that sort of drew me to this era and always has is because it's a moment really where something that can recognizably be called the modern world begins mm -hmm. in the sense of power being distributed very unequally across the globe, but where suddenly groups are trying to control other groups to whom they have very little relationship mm -hmm. with British and India or, you know, and of course, the French and Haiti. Um, so these kind of large scale or the American colonists and indigenous Americans. So I think that um, that question of sort of how, every, so it kind of became built into the novel of characters as well, either mm -hmm. failing to represent people other to them or trying to represent people mm -hmm. other to them um, became critical. And then to the extent that obviously there's even this kind of sci-fi element that creeps in of yes. <laughs> almost you know how would you think about an alien as it were mm -hmm. you know, sort of so you know I can't know if I've achieved what I wanted to achieve but certainly it yeah and it and I and I'm sure it was influenced politically both in the sort of anxiety about whether to do that but also I think in feeling a kind of need to as well that kind of thinking there is something to it felt old fashioned as it were to write the literature of the perpetrator, you know, mm -hmm. for it to, mm -hmm. you know, that, that sort of, I think the ethical dilemma of the monster no longer interests mm -hmm. me. You know, I'm much more interested now, I think in thinking, well, 
what does it mean to resist monsters you know and I think one of the things that fascinated me as well was to think well these stories are routinely sort of dismissed as well the story of a victim can't be a narrative because a narrative right. needs action and kind of if you're and partly I think I a wants to say well that's not even true that that there is no reason why action needs to be you know always like mm -hmm. direct action needs to be the subject of a book but also more importantly there was a huge amount of risk that is in itself a form of action even if it's mm. less or less um so that kind of idea of recovering from the archive a lost story or a lost desire seems to me more and more important yeah and so the the the, the character of celine herself because she is a kind of a the formidable presence uh in this book and i and i felt from the very first page i kind of had um sort of a, a sense of what um of the the force of her character and the sort of the complexity of it um how did how did she come to you as a character was it sort of on the page in the redrafting and the redrafting or was there kind of a voice or a phrase or something which sort of allowed her to blossom in your mind yeah i don't know i think that she i think she that i agree like, i think i really want it one of the things that was really my aim actually here was to think i really want a full character like i mm. want someone like I remember there's some anecdote of, I'm not comparing myself to Joyce, but when Joyce was writing Ulysses and he was saying like the great thing about Leopold Bloom is he's everything. He's a husband, he's a son, he's a father, mm. you know, like you see him in all. And I was really kind of trying, I was thinking, you know, that needs to be a kind of idea of like, I want to see her in lots of different mm. ways, you know, to see her um, in as, you know, as 360 degree as possible. So I don't know. I mean, there was definitely, there were, again, there was some historical precedence, you know, mm -hmm. so that there was a, in many ways, as she, so, so she's no one person, but she's a slight, you know, I occasionally used bits of uh, known or lesser known mm -hmm. women at the time, um, but there's no single person who corresponds to her. Um, and I guess, again, thinking about this kind of mashup of the sort of contemporary and the 18th century, um, I think that she kind of represented almost like, you know, friends of mine, you know, like people oh. I know, you know, like this kind of, and I think that that sense of anger mm. and refusal to be defined by other people seemed to me, you know, something that I felt very strongly from many conversations yeah. in five years. So uh, I think that she, you know, so as always, she's kind of a mixture, but I think that, it was interesting to see yeah how she developed and I think one thing I liked also I think again this was quite important partly for choosing a historical novel actually was to think I wanted to write about someone aging mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted at least a sort of 20-year age span I wanted someone that you would see like me as it was move into middle age or something mm -hmm. kind of middle age and so and I knew that I didn't really want to do that in the present day, as it were. Like I wasn't mm -hmm. at the moment interested in writing a novel that would be a kind of historical novel of the 70s, 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that, but I needed that long time span um, because I think to see someone begin as one thing and end very far away from mm -hmm. that is something that, you know, just fascinates me. You know, that, 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 that kind of the... the the ways in which time both changes a person and it, mm -hmm. and also leaves them the same, I think was one of the things I really was trying to find a way of portraying. Yeah. Um, 
And so in that sense, yeah, I think that it was really like enjoyable to begin with this person who in many ways is just this incredibly cool it girl, as it were. But, um, and then by the end of the novel, hopefully has like massively grown in sort of maturity or in, mm -hmm. in sort of just in life experience and that sort of things. So that although in one sense, this refusal to be defined by others is her kind of defining characteristic yeah yeah yeah. to do that in so many different ways um that that really kind of enlarges her and I think that was something that I really was keen on exploring was kind of the idea that you think you've resisted one monster as it were mm -hmm. but then a different one turns up in a different guise so that she's attacked you know in one era for being too aristocratic in another mm -hmm. era for being too radical or kind of you know that kind of um, depending on who's in power, she represents something different. Mm -hmm. Which feeds, does seem to feed a little bit back into that conversation about social media um, yeah. as well. There's sort of the way they can, a reputation can just turn on on a sixpence in like <laughs> in a couple of seconds. Um, I think one of the, one of the things I think you alluded to it earlier was that sort of, one of the things I guess that contributes to this process of maturing for Celine is sort of negotiating the different, structures of power that um that surround her so even though as you said like she as, a, as an aristocrat she could be considered to possess a certain amount of power that power is then circumscribed by um the way that women have to have to exist um, within that system and i thought some of the um, most interesting parts of the book were the moments where she finds those those ways out in a way or those kind of like pockets of um of resistance and i think one of the most um, profound uh, pockets, if you like, is around the subject of friendship. Um, and so her particular her two sort of principal friends throughout the book, Marta and Julia, um, it seems to, I don't know, the, the book seems to give a place to friendship and perhaps, I guess, female friendship um, that is often, I think, ignored in, in literature, particularly literature that about the sort of, you know, the upper classes or the aristocracy or things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if, in many ways, I think what I was trying to get at was this maybe contrast between friendship and family, you know, or the mm -hmm. idea of the invented family that you create as you kind of get older, you know, that you begin with this given family and then you somehow move away from it and you create something maybe more kind of consonant with your mm -hmm. ideals, your kind of your politics or your um, how you want to live. And so certainly the friendships she has are they're the basis of her resistance to the kind of power mm -hmm. structures um and also the conversations that they have so this I, I think there's a huge ideal in this book of conversation as opposed to writing almost mm -hmm. I think that yeah writing is seen as this horrible male violent act mm -hmm. that is basically trying to sort of control other people in particular women but not just women and conversation is often seen as a sort of more utopian moment mm -hmm. where something can be improvised and where there can be equality um and where and also in its very fragility the fact that it's mm -hmm. not to be preserved it's not yeah. something that actually that allows something more beautiful to emerge um and it's true because i think it was exactly in that kind of also, I think, trying to kind of find a way of describing something that I'd always been fascinated by, where 
since you know like as you say when you say she's aristocratic and it's this kind of sense of thinking making her someone who's aware that you are as it were what you do as much mm -hmm. as what you think and so that whether or not you may have the most radical thoughts means nothing if essentially the life you are living is exactly the same as the life of the person mm -hmm. in power um and i think that I also kind of found interesting, I think it was important that as it was, she had more than one friend so that there were different use, you know, so some of the, you know, the other thing I was fascinated by was trying to represent how friendships can come and go. Mm -hmm. That's something you feel incredibly close to at a certain point in your life might disappear for a moment and then reappear mm -hmm. or someone you felt less close to initially might gradually grow in importance to you. And you realize that actually they were always mm -hmm. incredibly reliable as it were in some way. Um, but yeah, I think it was the kind of idea of allyship almost of how mm -hmm. do you, if you're feeling that you have no power, like, well, how do you go about trying to construct it? And I think, especially for women, I think certainly in that period and ongoing, how you, you know, friendships are the place where you can at least have an initial resistance that mm -hmm. can lead to something more publicly. I'd like to pick up on that, that idea because I think find it really interesting about um, the difference between writing and conversation um, and just, I guess, ask for a little cl clarification of where then gossip fits in that, because that's also I mean, there's one particular moment, if I can just find it, I've got the note here where where you write, no one knows anyone or at least they try not to. Instead of conversation, we have rumour, um, opinion, journalism, prejudice, gossip, all the forms of language that have no weight at all. Um, so I was just wondering, could you re yeah, reflect on the, the role that this kind of, I guess this is kind of a third stream of language influencing the society? Yeah, it's true. So there's, 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 I, I, I yeah, within the kind of graph of the novel, as it were, I mm -hmm. guess, yeah, there's, there's good writing, which would be in some way purely playful, mm -hmm. usual to judge kind of writing. Um, and then there's the bad writing of something that is only intended to misconstrue or misconceive and, mm -hmm. and to control um and i guess that yeah it's true that within the novel there's also i guess two types of conversation there's bad conversation mm -hmm. which <laughs> and then there would be the good conversation which was again dedicated to playfulness and, mm -hmm. and comprehension i think i think there's a moment around that passage where there's something that i think was very important to the sort of mechanics of the novel where I think there's a sentence where it says you know there's no such thing um as a mistaken incomprehension or as a, you mm -hmm. know as a as a innocent misunderstanding mm -hmm. in fact all a misunderstanding is deliberate and um a form of sort of violence and there is part of me I think that does believe that and think that actually what's the the beauty of conversation in this novel especially between women is the ability to try and actually understand somebody else mm -hmm. You know, it goes back to our conversation about representation. Like, actually, mm -hmm. try and think from the perspective of another, um, which, of course, is is crucial to the art of the novel, but also, you know, any kind of politics. I think, really. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that kind of, I guess, rumor you see would be is language without any reference to the truth, as it were, mm -hmm. like without any moral. Um, sense it's true it's interesting it's just occurring to you know like I think I wouldn't necessarily think of myself as a very ethical writer as it were but <laughs> there's clearly in this but in a way a deeply ethical strand mm -hmm. um, 
Well, I suppose a very, you know, there is, I think always in my books, there's this negotiation with the utopian and trying mm -hmm. to find some utopian position, finding it in some ways, I think partly in conversation and then partly also in the natural world, almost mm -hmm. essentially thinking outside yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find that really interesting idea, the the utopia, because in connection, I suppose, to the the concept of time, which is um, which is so present in the novel, and we've touched on it a couple of times already, um, because <clears throat> at least as I suppose one understanding you could say of of the idea of utopia is that it you reach an almost timeless state. You know, you arrived at a state which will be which will be preserved for forever, um, and. I don't know, it just it seems to connect in some way to that idea of this kind of collapse of time that you that you achieve with this novel, where it sort of it feels both contemporary um, and historical. Um, this is just a thought which has occurred to me now, so I don't have any further <laughs> reflection no, I mean, on it. But it's really interesting. I mean, I suppose because the other thing I'd say about utopia in time is it's always in the future. You know, that like you're right. okay. yeah, yeah. Is always this ideal that is always. <laughs> of course, historically is often used. You use an imaginary future mm -hmm. in order to then pulverize people in the present moment. So yeah. you're telling the people you need to suffer now, but it will all be fine. Um, seems mm -hmm. to be one of the great dangers of the utopian is that it's ignoring the present moment, as it were, for some potentially impossible future. Um, yeah, and I, I guess there's a lot. I mean, so. There are two strands to the way I, I think the future then operates in this book because again it kind of comes back to one of the things I always found funny about historical fiction is how much it functions with you knowing the plot as it were so right. yeah well-known people you know what's going to happen so you're kind of you have this dramatic irony you know where the characters don't know what's going to happen but of course we the reader in the future do know what's going to happen to them um, Berlin 1930 <laughs> exactly you know and then you have people living happily <laughs> um, and so I think that was one of the reasons actually why I so wanted to then have a major counterfactual counter historical sort of finale was almost to do the same thing to the reader as was normally done to characters in mm. historical fiction was to say you think you know the story of this mm. and actually I'm going to like change this at a certain point so that in fact the future wasn't predictable with, uh, within the world of this novel. Um, and I think also there was this idea, there's a larger idea that actually relates to, partly to I suppose a utopian ideal in my own head about fiction and about how to write it where the very first sort of, one of the first pieces I wrote for this book, it was very funny, it was, um, a dialogue where I, a bit like Frank O'Hara's poem about talking to the sun, which is, um, which I think he copied from Markovsky. I kind of wrote this mad three or four pages of me talking to the sun, where the sun kind of comes to berate me saying, you know, you're always writing about like people having sex in London as it were, and like, you've got to get out more and you need to, you know, like basically saying kind of, you know, that I was, and I, because I think there was this real concern in me of just thinking, and I'm sure this is in some way kind of climate emergency related of thinking, well, there's got to be a way of writing from a much larger perspective. Why does a novel just only have to be almost human? Like, can't, could you mm. imagine a novel that, from the perspective of a forest? You know, I think I was very influenced by a lot of anthropology I was reading about, you know, like how forests think and kind of this mm. idea of actually personification might not be such a kind of, you know, it's very like, almost demoted in Western mm. culture, but very much not in other cultures and thinking, could there be a more magical version of a novel? Mm. 
Um, and I remember showing this to my editor and saying, I found the beginning of my novel. This is going to be amazing. And she was like, this is never going to be. The <laughs> um, uh, but it does survive in there are tiny parts where there is this kind of quite crazy sort of magical moment or two mm. where Celine is able to somehow talk to the universe, like talk to mm. a tree or to a forest. Um, and that was part of actually the collapse of time where, because I was kind of fascinated and thinking, of course, you know, from a, very you know from if, if you're minutely analyzing how the social media of 2010 it differs to the social media of 2019 or whatever of course then there will be you'll be able to notice anachronism everywhere mm -hmm. but actually from the perspective of a universe human history is just minute mm -hmm. and it exists so 200 years is nothing in yeah. terms yeah, yeah. um time frame said so to be honest so from a perspective of an alien as it were this was my idea you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between 1775 and 2023. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, that was also part of the play was to say, are we really going to, you know, like we need to be, you know, like, can you think it's a larger kind of scale? Mm -hmm. I think that also is part of the utopian impulse to the book that, yeah, if you're going to try and think from a, a universe perspective, as it were, I have no idea how that would really be possible, but in this utopian world, it's possible. Um, that's going to do very strange things to exactly to your idea of certainly of time frame that it's going yeah. to make differences you might see seem irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And that I guess is one of the um, I, surprising elements of Celine's. I don't know if liberation is quite the word, but it's sort of well, the, the, we have that Celine has, I guess, and we experience as a reader too, is that sort of it's it's not about necessarily reconfiguring the world in which she finds herself, but of step by step coming to realize that there are other worlds outside of the world and you know, this kind of her world is the core of her experience but then whether that be uh first for example um america as the concept which i think we sometimes must forget how the new world must have reconfigured people's minds over you know when it, when it was still sort of a fresh idea and then there's also now i'm going to hesitate because I don't know if we should talk about it. you've mentioned the sci-fi element um she makes she visits an, another place yeah. <laughs> i'm going to allow you to talk about it as much as you you think our, our listeners should um should know but which is again it's like kind of a radical um sort of transformation i guess her her, her journey is to kind of more and more macro appreciation of the, the universe into which she's born into yeah so i think that you know there are Within the novel, you know, that basically what I try to construct was that this story is happening within other stories. Mm -hmm. Gradually you realize that these other stories that seem just vignettes that have no obvious bearing on Celine's story are in fact operating so that they will in fact genuinely alter um, the path of her own. And mm -hmm. so this idea that um, and even that the arguments that are happening in her tiny world are also going to have effects on worlds that are currently unaware um, of their world. And so that idea of the kind of worlds within worlds and worlds unaware of other worlds was mm -hmm. deeply important, I think, to the thinking of the book. Um, and it's true that America, I think, I did want to play with as, yeah, that certainly in the 18th century for a French revolutionary would have you know america had this huge utopian pull mm -hmm. um whereas 
you know, but then at the same, so I wanted to show people being that excited by this kind of idealized America and at the same time have this um, sense, I think it was quite important to me that you have this sense of American colonialism as something equally violent to anything else going on mm -hmm. um, and destroying worlds that it didn't understand. Um, and so eventually, yeah, it's true that therefore the novel it almost felt that the energy of the novel needs to therefore almost move off planet mm -hmm. <laughs> as it were, to kind of really explore what it wanted to explore um, in an episode that I kind of quite enjoyed, I think partly loved writing, but also I like how it's really, it's never stated whether or not it's true as it were, you know, like uh -huh. it's a moment of pure unreality, but at the same time, which you could easily read as a dream as it were, mm -hmm. but which, can also be read as entirely something that happened. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that was quite important. I think that this universe is capable of sort of to accommodate the fantastical in some way. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I think the idea of um, trying to think from a larger and larger perspective, um, even if that's only to ironize your own perspective, to just mm -hmm. make you aware how relative it is um it was part of the sort of both the structure of the book and also yeah a lot of the way it kind of moves around the water mm -hmm. yeah um, one of one of the things I, I i suppose most impressed me about when when we got to this section which we're which we're tiptoeing around um and it was a little bit like it reminded me of um something i guess not entirely dissimilar in um mason and dixon the thomas pynchon um, novel, which I, I think possibly comes about a similar way, a point in about three quarters of the way in, where there's kind of a different element of the of the of the world kind of revealed, is that if you would if you were to tell the reader at the beginning that this was going to happen, they would probably sort of immediately lose faith. <laughs> but the success of the novel is always like by the by the time you get to it, that it, it feels right and it doesn't uh, you know it still catches you off guard, yeah. but it doesn't feel um, alien, as it were, to the um, yeah. the existence of the novel. Yeah, I think that um, it's true that the novel kind of gets almost wilder and wilder, you know, that, mm -hmm. and it's certainly true that the novel that, as it begins, is very different to the novel as it ends, I think, mm -hmm. um, in its, I guess, mainly in its relationship to the improbable or the impossible um but i think what i was kind of hopeful was thinking well since there's so much play already with the anachronistic in the early stages so when it's kind of seems like a relatively stable historical novel mm -hmm. if very anachronistic but the anachronism was a clue that something was already at work and mm -hmm. that it wasn't um uh only sort of not only that um so so yeah i guess it's kind of and i guess the the fantastical was part of thinking through the kind of how to expand the novel in some senses how mm. to take it out to something a certain mode and kind of move it into another yeah which is i guess where where i wanted to finish because obviously i mentioned kapow earlier um and in different ways but it does seem that each of your books is struggling with that sort of um, I guess the limitations that, not necessarily of the of the novel form itself, but of the of the expectations that are often 
placed on the novel form. And you mentioned, for example, this conversation with your editor, with the, the opening pages that you... Uh... Right. <laughs> <laughs> but is there... Um... I, sp I suppose, yeah, I suppose my final question is, is, is that something you see as sort of a limitation to the novel form which you're pushing against or something that is inherent to the the idea of the novel itself, I suppose? Yeah, I don't think, that, I don't think there's any limitation to the novel form, actually, you know, so that I think um, it's how to explore things um, is exactly, I think, why novels are so exciting. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm trying to think kind of, it's interesting because some of the novels that I was reading, you know, it seems to me that as much as, you know, we started this conversation saying that historical fiction can be a very sort of, I don't know what the right word would be, but like a very fixed genre. Mm -hmm. um, actually, there are also examples. I mean, like Orlando was definitely a book right. that was hugely in my head as a technically a historical mm -hmm. novel, but which does wild things to gender and to identity mm -hmm. and to time um, and to the idea of a character and what a character can do. Um, and there was also quite a lot of sort of Latin American historical fiction mm -hmm. in the 20th century, which I think had a slightly woozier vibe, as it were, mm -hmm. than British kind of historical fiction. Um, like um, Antonio de Benedetto's novel Anzama, which got made into a brilliant movie by Lucrecia Martel, uh -huh. um, where that is a kind of existential, it's set in technically like 18th century Latin America with a Spanish colonial kind mm -hmm. of administrator. But he's essentially experiencing an existential 20th century crisis. And it's written in very pared down language, again, with very little effort to try and make it seem like it's set in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was something I think I was reading that and thinking, yeah, that gave me some kind of license to think, yeah, there are ways of doing this um, and that can let sort of fantastical elements in as well so so yeah no I don't feel I'm in some way upset at the novel in some way you know as a form I think it's the opposite I think it can do so much that sometimes you know I think almost I have a worry like where I feel I can get so excited about some kind of maximal actually uh -huh. <laughs> you know um it needs to be slightly controlled and one thing I, I guess I did enjoy about this is for all its kind of playfulness in some ways I think that it's certainly also got a lot of events, as it were, so mm. that, you know, partly to use the kind of historical fiction genre to think, okay, what well, stuff has to happen, you know, yeah. be a revolution and people will have to die, as it were. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, was really kind of exciting as well to kind of give it some kind of you know, gravity as well. Mm -hmm. Well, that is all we've got time for. Um, the, the Future Future is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company, um, from our bricks and mortar store, from our online shop, or from your independent bookstore, wherever that may be. Um, Adam Thurwell, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>